you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through verse 13. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 13. You'll remember this passage follows the Olivet Discourse, and now uh, Christ will uh, really set his face towards the cross. And over the coming weeks, as we work our way uh, towards the crucifixion of Christ, uh, we're going to see a lot of intrigue, we're going to see a lot of deceit, we're going to see betrayal, we're going to see some scheming, and we're even going to see failure on the part of some of the disciples. But in the midst of all of that, as we move closer to the cross, one of the things that we will also very clearly see, and we're going to see it in our text this morning, is the sovereign hand of God. He is moving and working in the midst of every one of these events. And what we'll also see in this text this morning is an extravagant, a, a radical demonstration of worship on, a part, on the part of a woman, and it will bring out of Jesus a response that we find nowhere else in the Gospels. Jesus is going to say of what this woman does, that, that what she has done, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will be spoken of in memory of her. And it's not just some random act of worship. This is a model that's to be imitated of all those who seek to follow Jesus. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father... We thank you for your word this morning. And Father, we pray by your grace this morning that we would hear your voice in your word. Lord, I pray that you would prevent me from saying anything that would muddy the water or hinder anyone from seeing your clear truth in your word this morning. God, we ask that you give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to see both the sovereignty of God in this passage and the worship of this this woman. As we look at the sovereignty of God, we see it in two ways in this passage. Number one, we're going to see it in the purpose of Christ. So look with me in verses one through two. It says there, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is going to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, this marks the fourth time that Jesus has explicitly stated that he has come to die. Now, he's implied it in a lot of other places, but at least on four occasions, just in the Gospel of Matthew, we see him say to his disciples very clearly that I have come to die. When Jesus comes to the earth, he comes with a very specific mission in mind, and he telegraphs that mission to us. He has come to die For our sins. He says here, the Son of Man is going to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, you remember last week when we looked at Son of Man, what was the Son of Man doing in last week's text? He was coming to do what? He was coming to judge and to rule. But before the Son of Man comes to rule and to judge, he comes to die for the sins of man. 
Colossians 1.15, that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by him and through him all things were created, both the heavens and the earth, visible and visible, invisible, thrones or dominion, rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Meaning he is God. He is the Son of Man, and he is God. But that passage goes on to say, but it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Meaning it was the Father's will that Christ come and die for the sins of man. And Christ comes with that very specific mission in mind. In fact, you want to go all the way back to the Old Testament, you can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, but you'll remember even in Isaiah 53, it says if he'll render himself as a guilt offering, he'll see his offspring and he'll prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he'll see it and he'll be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I I will allot him a portion with the great, and he'll divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured himself out unto death. Jesus came to die. It was the Father's plan before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about us, knowing everything about you, knowing every evil deed you would ever commit, every impure thought that would enter your mind, every unwholesome word that would come out of your mouth, Knowing all of that, God had already predetermined to send his son to die on the cross, not for his sins, but for yours, for mine. And Christ is what? He is the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. And he is perfectly obedient to the father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why is this so important? Why am I beating a dead horse here? Because it's important for us to be reminded that as we work our way towards the cross and we see all these events taking place, we are reminded that Jesus is not just some unfortunate individual who got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, the death of Christ was his mission and it was God's will. The Father was pleased to crush him. Why? So that he could provide a way of salvation for you and me. So as Jesus said, no one is going to take his life. He will lay it down of his own initiative. It's been said that if Christ didn't want to go to the cross, if he didn't intend to go to the cross, then all the armies of the world couldn't have put him there. But if he did intend to go to the cross, the smallest of children could have led him by the hand. So we see all these things. No, this is the Father's plan. Jesus, when the Passion of Christ came out, a lot of controversy. Did the Romans kill Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? Listen, it wasn't a result of the sinfulness of the Romans or the scheming of the Jews. It was the Father's will. So we see it in the purpose of Christ. We see the sovereignty of God. Secondly, we see it in the plotting of the Jews. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So the Jews have come up with a very intricate plot in order to take Jesus out. 
the popularity of Jesus has increased, especially uh, following the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It appears that the whole nation is beginning to follow after him. And now the Jewish leadership is becoming very concerned. Uh, Israel was a vassal state at this point to the Romans. And the Romans, for the most part, let them do really whatever they wanted to do, as long as they didn't threaten Caesar or threaten Rome. Well, here the Jewish leadership, they see Jesus, and the nation wants to make him king. And they're afraid that the Romans are going to see this uh, as a threat to Caesar, as a threat to Rome. And so their minds, they know we've got to put this guy down because if they see this as a threat, they'll stop our business. And they've come up with a really good business plan to make money off of the Jewish people. And so Caiaphas will say, better, better, than one, better that one man die than the whole nation. Let's just take him out. Let's just get this one man. Let's take him out and it'll save us all. And so from that moment forward, they begin to figure out how in the world can we get him. But they know, as we see here, they got to take him by stealth. They can't take him during the day. Why? Because they know the nation loves him. It'll start a riot. That'll be a whole nother issue. That'll be a whole nother problem. So we got to get him at night. In order to get him at night, what do they got to do? They got to find an insider. They got to find somebody on the inside that knows where he goes at night. And they really preferably want to find out where he'll be on the night of Passover. Why do they want to find out the night of Passover? Because on Passover, where is everybody at? Where do you celebrate Passover? In your home. It's like Christmas morning. Everybody will be in their homes. Nobody will know about this. So we want to get him while nobody's watching. And then we got to put together a plan to try him within 24 hours twice under the cover of darkness. We're going to have to pay some false witnesses. We're going to have to set them up. We're going to have to get him on the, the charge, not of blasphemy, because Rome doesn't care uh, if you claim to be God and as much as you don't threaten Rome. So they got to get him on sedition as a threat against Rome. And they got to prep Pilate to be ready first thing in the morning to take him to him so that they can get him condemned of sedition and put on the cross by 9 a.m. before everybody gets up. But they do want him crucified. They want him crucified publicly so that everybody will eventually see that he's a fraud. Because if he really was God, he'd take himself down by the cross. And boy, they worked this plan pretty well. And I bet they're sitting back as they work this deal out thinking, boy, we are clever. We are smart. We are good. But what do we know? Every bit of this is playing right into the hands of God. It's really hard to outsmart God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointing, anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens does what? He laughs. Is God able to take uh, the scheming of sinful, evil men and turn it around for our salvation and his glory? Uh, you think in the Old Testament, you think of Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, and specifically, who betrayed him? His brother, Judah. And Judah betrayed him, sold him for the price of a slave, and what did God do? He turned it around for what? For the salvation of the nation. Samson, in, in, in the book of Judges, Judges 15, really awesome story. Judges 15, Samson makes the Philistines really, really mad. And the tribe of Judah says, you know what? Why don't we just tie up Samson and give Samson to the Philistines and maybe this one man will appease their anger and they won't come after us. 
Better for one man to die than the entire nation. So let's just give up Samson. So they tie him up with ropes and they send him off to the Philistines. And what happens? The, the power of God comes upon him. He breaks those ropes. And what does he do? He takes the jawbone of a donkey. He takes the instrument of death. He stands between the nation and certain death. And he defeats death with the jawbone of a donkey. And after he defeats him, he's on the hill of Ramoth Lehi. And on that hill, you know what he cries out? I thirst. Does that sound familiar? Cries out, I thirst, and the, the, the mountain breaks open and water pours forth, and the place of death becomes the place of life. Isn't that an awesome story? So Joseph, betrayed by Judah. God works it out for the salvation of the nation. Samson, betrayed by the tribe of Judah. God turns it around for the salvation of the nation. Right here, Jesus is going to be betrayed by who? Not Judah, but Judas. And is God able to turn it around for our salvation and for his glory? Folks, this is really good to remember whenever you find yourself in a position where you're being treated unfairly by sinful men and women and you've got to rest in the sovereignty of God. See, isn't it good to know that we don't operate within the box of cause and effect that Two plus two plus two equals six, and i got to have an eight, so I'm in trouble. No, we got God outside the box, don't we? And if he wants to part the Red Sea, he can part the Red Sea. If he wants to take Pharaoh's firstborn, he can take Pharaoh's firstborn. If he wants all of Egypt to contribute uh, to Israel's exile fund, he can do that too. Why? Because he is sovereign. Is he pleased with every one of these circumstances? No. Is he in charge? Absolutely. Does he let them know in every moment what he's doing? No, he doesn't. You just got to trust him. But we see this in this passage that he is sovereign. And we will continue to see his sovereign hand as we work up to the crucifixion of Christ. So we see the sovereignty of God. But secondly, in this passage, we're going to see the worship of a woman. Look at verses 6 through 7. It says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. So really a beautiful picture here. They're in Bethany, which is a place that Jesus frequented. He had friends there uh, during the Passion Week. This is often where he would spend the evenings in Bethany. And he goes to Bethany. Bethany, if you leave, you've been to Jerusalem. It's out the eastern gate. You go down through the Kidron Valley. You go up the Mount of Olives. Just over the hill, and there's Bethany. And he goes to Bethany, and it says Simon the leper invites him over for a meal. We don't know a whole lot about Simon the leper, um, although we know he was a leper, and obviously he's been cleansed. Otherwise, he wouldn't be inviting people over to his house because lepers couldn't touch anybody. They couldn't be in, near anyone some conjecture, and I like to do this as well, uh, that this just might have been the leper that approached Jesus after the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, whatever the case may be, here is a man who's been cleansed of leprosy, and most would believe due to the ministry of Christ. And just overwhelmed, probably having heard that Jesus was in the area, he invites him over to a meal. Now, John's gospel, and as you need to do, you have to read the gospels together to really get the fullness of the picture. But John's gospel tells us that he not only invites Jesus, but he invites Lazarus and his family. 
So you got Lazarus coming over for a meal. You got Mary and Martha uh, there and all the disciples. So can you just imagine this? You got a guy who, lepers, they just gave you your last rites when you got leprosy. They sent you outside the nation. You were, you were as good as dead. Um, here is a man who, for all intents and purposes, was dead, and he's been brought back to life due to Christ. You got a guy who was dead, <laughs> sitting at the dinner table, who's now been brought back to life. Everybody in the room owes their existence to Jesus. Now, wouldn't that have been a fun meal to be at? Do you not think there was some joy in that room? Love to have been a fly on the wall there. And in the midst of that, this woman, and John's gospel tells us it was Mary. Mary's overwhelmed. Now, I don't know, again, I like to conjecture some on these things. So if this is not God's word, let it just fall. But I just so happen to believe Mary was just so overwhelmed. She couldn't stand it anymore. And I think Mary understands. I don't know if it was the mood of Christ. I think in my mind, the way I picture this, there's so much excitement, there's so much joy. But I think Mary, where, whenever we see Mary in Scripture, where is Mary at? She's always at the feet of Jesus. People who are always abiding at the feet of Jesus tend to have ways of seeing things that other people can't see. And I think... She looks at Jesus and she begins to understand. He's about to sacrifice himself. Maybe in the midst of all the joy, she looks at Christ and she sees a bit of sorrow on his face. I don't know. I will tell you, most commentators don't agree with me. They'll say, how in the world could she have known that Christ was going to die? Well, then, you know the question I would ask? How did the thief know that he was a sinner and Jesus was a savior? You Remember the thief on the cross? Do you not fear God? This man, we're, we're getting what we justly deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. What does he understand? He understands I'm a sinner and Jesus is perfect. And then he understands that Jesus is a king. He understands that Jesus is about to enter into his kingdom. And he understands that the only way to enter into that kingdom is by faith in Jesus. Pretty good theology for a guy who's a rebel and a thief on a cross. How did he come up with that knowledge? I believe the Holy Spirit of God opened his eyes to the reality of his own sin and the beauty of his Savior. And I think in this moment, God opens the eyes of this woman right here. And she begins to understand he's about to sacrifice for himself for us. He, he, he is the Passover lamb. And she just can't contain the love that she feels in her heart. And she looks for something to do. Something to, to give a visible expression of her love and worship. Have you, ever, have you ever had a moment like that in your life? Where God moved, and, and there was just a moment where God moved in your heart. Maybe something happened in your life, but the, God moved in your life in such a fashion that there came a moment where you, you, you didn't even know what to do, but you wanted to do something more than just tell Jesus you loved him. You wanted a visible expression. You wanted to do something. Well, right here is a woman who's so overwhelmed. She just desires, she's looking at Lazarus, and she's looking at Jesus, and, and she just desires to do something. Maybe she desired to give a speech, and she thinks, I'm shy. That's not going to work. Maybe she thinks about money, but she knows Jesus isn't, isn't interested in money. So she goes back to her room. She gets, she gets what was probably the most precious, the most valuable thing in all of her life. She gets this alabaster jar of perfume. 
Mark's tell, Mark tells us a pint of pure nard. You only get it in northern, uh, northern India. Very rare, very expensive. Mark tells us also that it's probably worth about 300 denarii, a year's wages. Most conjecture somewhere between fifty dollars and $80,000. But you know, quite frankly, the money, the value is not that big. The, the, the financial value is not that big of a deal. It's what it represents. For her, this was her glory. A woman's perfume was a, was a demonstration of your status, of your wealth. This is the most precious thing she has. And just as in an expression of love, in a radical, extravagant expression of love, she breaks the vial of perfume and she pours it out on Christ. Just covers him in an expression of love. A radical expression of love. But then what do we see next? Look at the response of the disciples. It says in verses 8 through 9, but the disciples were indignant when they saw this. By the way, i got to stop here because I, I, you've got to see this. In verse 12, Jesus tells us that she did it. Why? In verse 12, it says she did it to prepare me for burial. Don't miss that. Because in all of the stuff that's going to happen leading up to the cross, there will not be enough time to appropriately prepare Jesus for burial as according to Jewish custom. But wouldn't it be just like God to move in the heart of one woman so as to make sure that his son had an appropriate preparation for his burial? And I can't help but wonder if Jesus in this moment didn't think in his head or quote out loud from Psalm 23, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He has anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. I think in that moment, it was a special moment. Jesus knowing God the Father is another way of him saying, this is my son and I love you. But the response of the disciples, you see it, verses 8 9, but the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste for this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor? This is, I don't know about you, but this is not, if you, we get so used to these stories, but this is not what I would expect the disciples to do. They know Jesus, they love him. But they scold this woman for expressing love towards Christ. And John's gospel tells us that Judas leads the charge, and they're very pragmatic in their thinking, which is often what we do. We're, we're pragmatic thinkers, and so their mindset is, well, this money could have been used to tell, take care of the poor. We could have built a hospital. You know, we could have done all kinds of things with this, and, which we know, quite frankly, was a lie, at least in Judas's case, because what was Judas doing? He was pilfering from the box. He just, in his mind, he's just thinking, that's less money that's going to go in my pockets, but I, I, honestly, I don't think that the disciples were that concerned uh, with the poor either. But I can guarantee you that every one of those disciples were convicted by this woman's expression of devotion. And you know what I've often found? The radical devotion of Christ's followers is often critiqued by the cold hearts of the religious. And so they mock her and they scold her, crazy woman. What a waste. 
But look at the response of Christ in verses 10 through 13. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she's done a good deed to me. For you'll always have the poor with you. But you do not always have me. And and let me just stop right there. Jesus is not saying we shouldn't care for the poor. He's saying that the obligation, the opportunity to care for the poor, it'll always be there. You're always going to have opportunities. You're always going to have an obligation to care for the poor. But you're not always going to have me right here. This is a one-time moment for this lady. She doesn't do this right here. She's going to miss the chance. And he goes on to say, as we mentioned earlier, for when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus canonizes the, the actions of this woman. He says, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus says those, that phrase, verily, verily, or truly, I say to you, he's meaning this is important. Watch this. You've got to see this. He says, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be told of in memory of her. You know, in Mark's gospel, at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus recognizes a widow putting in one mite, and he tells us, guys, that's greatness. That's what I'm looking for. All this other junk, I don't care. That's greatness. After the Olivet Discourse, he acknowledges a woman who demonstrates love and devotion. Anybody that thinks that Christianity devalues women hasn't read the Gospels that I'm reading. On both occasions, it's not Peter who's doing this. But it's a woman. And what, what she's done, wherever the Gospels preach, it'll always be told in memory of her. And we are a validation of that prophecy, are we not? Because right here we are, over 2,000 years later, in, in, in Lenexa, Kansas. And you know what we're talking about? A woman who demonstrated devotion in an extravagant way. And Jesus says that this woman's act will be a perpetual reminder of the appropriate response of the believer to Christ. As one commentator has said, this is classic Christianity. This is how a person is intended to respond to the gospel and the grace of God demonstrated in Christ. This is Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in light of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of worship. This is not just some random act. This woman is a model for us of how you and I are intended to respond to Jesus. She gives all that she has. She gives her her glory, all that I have, all that I am. I lay it down at the feet of Jesus because this is how precious he is to me. And it's voluntary. No one had to, to twist Mary's arm. Nobody's sitting over going, Mary, hey, now's that time when you go get that vial and you need to... No, she just, in fact, I would have told you, I don't think anybody could have kept her from doing this. She recognized who Christ was and who she was. She looks at everybody in this room, and her heart's overwhelmed, and she can't, she can't be kept from doing this. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if somebody's got to twist your arm, if you know who you are as a sinner who deserves nothing but death and hell, and you understand who Christ is as the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God who died in your place to provide you with a salvation and a freedom and an eternity with him forever, simply on the basis of your faith in him, if you understand the gospel and somebody has to twist your arm to give your life to Jesus, I'm just going to tell you, I don't think you get it. 
Now, when we understand who he is and who we are, <laughs> we just lay our life down out of an expression of love. It's violent. It's total. She gives all she can give. She breaks the bottle. She's not keeping anything back for herself. She's pouring out her future. She's pouring out her security. In her life, it was, this vial of perfume was probably one of those things that she could say, whatever else happens to me, at least I've got, I've got that vial of perfume. It's like a savings account. I'll always have, if something bad happens, I got that. That's my security. But not anymore, is it? No, her future and her security at this point is found in who? In Christ alone. Coming to Christ is a total commitment. Total abandonment into the will of God. Laying down all your dreams, laying down all your plans at the feet of Jesus and saying, I'm submitting myself to him willingly because of what he's done for me. It was sacrificial. He gave her be- she gave her best. And it cost her. In 2 Samuel 24, David, 2 Samuel 24, he's being judged. The nation's being judged for his poor leadership. The census and all that deal and the nation's being judged. And David knows he's got to do something. So he goes to Mount Moriah and he's going to buy the hill so he can set up a little altar there. And he can make sacrifice. And he goes to the owner of that hill and he says, hey, I need to buy that hill so I can make sacrifice there. And you'll remember the owner of the hill He's embarrassed. I mean, I can't, I can't have David, King David, paying me for a hill. I'm going to give it to him. David, you can have it. You remember what David says? I will not give my God that which costs me nothing, meaning I don't give God leftovers. He deserves my best. He deserves my everything. He deserves my all. It's sacrificial. Not only sacrificial, but it was joyful. There's not even a hint of obligation or reluctance. This is joy. It's a privilege. We don't give uh, to Christ out of a sense of obligation or somehow to earn something. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion, you do acts of worship and acts of religion in order to attain something. In Christianity, we perform acts of worship because we've already received, because of what Christ has done. And it's not an obligation. It's a joy. As one has said, if service to an earthly king is considered an honor, then how can service to an eternal king be considered a sacrifice? It's the joy of our hearts. You know, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd, uh, a cricket player, English cricket player. He, he was the Michael Jordan of his day. He had fame. He had wealth. He was handsome. He was everything the world could want. He came to faith in Christ through the ministry of D.L. Moody. But it's, he said that he, he kind of put God on the back burner. He said, all my life was really about, even though I knew Christ, my life was really just about making money. Until one day he happened upon a pamphlet written by an atheist. He picked up this pamphlet written by this atheist. And this atheist listed out reasons why he wouldn't become a Christian. And the reasons on that list, there was not science. It was not about theology. The number one reason why he said he would never become a Christian was because of the behavior of Christians. He said, if these people really believe this stuff, if they really believe that the stuff of this earth was fading and fleeting and it was going away, and if you really believe that all that really mattered in this world was the eternal destination of the souls of men and women and, and the things of heaven, then he said, it sure, sure would appear to me that you'd see a lot more Christians giving their life away to service to God and missions and evangelism. 
And C.T. Studd said he was embarrassed. And he took the words of the rich young ruler literally and he sold everything. He did keep back, he, he kept back a little nest egg. He was going to keep back, the, he was getting married. And he was going to keep back this little nest egg as a security for he and his wife in case something happened. And you know what? His fiance found out about it and she said, no, sir, you're not using me as an excuse to keep something back from God. Now, that's a godly woman. You ain't using me as an excuse, buster. It's on you. And he sold it all. And they gave their lives away to service to God in China and Africa. And the world thought they'd lost their marbles. You talk about the ridicule. The man's gone insane. And yet the Bible tells us that's the way to greatness. You know, as I study this, it's, it's just really neat. In John's gospel, she breaks the alabaster jar and it says the fragrance of the perfume filled the room. Can you imagine? A whole deal of pure nard spilled out in a room. I bet everybody in that room, when they left that place, wherever they went, they smelled like perfume for weeks. Where have you been? Well, let me tell you about this lady. I'm going to tell you, that's what happens when people give their life away to Christ. When you empty yourself out in service to Christ, you become a fragrant aroma to everybody in your world. A broken life is a sweet life. Let me put it this way. What kind of spouse do you want? You want a loving spouse? You want a forgiving spouse? You want a gentle spouse? You want a faithful spouse? We have a word for that. We call that Christ-likeness. And it's a fragrant aroma. What kind of child do you want? Obedient? Faithful? Moral? We have a word for that. It's called Christ-likeness. And it's a fragrant aroma. Listen, when you give your life away in service to Christ... The life of Christ, the righteousness of Christ is recreated in you and you become a fragrant aroma to everybody around you. Can I just ask you this morning, when, when was the last time in a demonstration of your extravagant love towards Christ, you demonstrated it in such a fashion that people thought you'd lost your marbles? Can you point to any moment in your life where your love and devotion to Christ was demonstrated in such a fashion that the world then said, that's craziness? That's the way to greatness. Not that God will ask all of us to sell everything we have, but listen, our heart's desire ought to be to lay it all down in light of who he is. When I was at Wedgwood Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas, Faith and I attended there, there was a song they sung over and over and over again the year we were there. It kind of became their theme song after the shooting that occurred at the Sea of the Pole Rally. And it went like this. All I once held dear and built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss. Spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus knowing you there is no greater thing you're my all you're my best you're my joy my righteousness and I love you Lord is that your heart this morning let's pray together father we thank you for your word
that speaks so clearly to us about how you and I, uh, as believers, were to respond to the message of the gospel. And Lord, I just pray with all my heart this morning, God, that all of us, that would be our heart's desire. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that maybe as we talk about giving our lives away and laying everything down to the feet of Jesus, that sounds absurd. And they can't understand why anybody would want to do that. And it could be because they've never trusted in you. They've never placed their faith in Christ. They've never understood the reality of what you did for them on the cross. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would work in their heart to peel back the blinders from their eyes so that they might see the beauty of Christ and his love demonstrated on their behalf. For those of us that do know you, Lord, I pray that we would lay our lives down this morning. In light of who you are, we'd hold nothing back. Lay down all our plans, all our dreams, knowing there's no greater thing than knowing you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe a question about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You can trust in him today. Maybe uh, you just wanna pray here at the altar, pray right where you're seated, that God would move in your life, that God would move in your family. Maybe you wanna unite with our church family, but this is your time. Know this this morning, you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.